0: Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Steve Ray and his talk, Peter, the Rock, the Keys, and the Chair, recorded at the Gift of Faith Conference in June 2008. And now, Steve Ray. Now, if you'd have
1: invited me to come here 15 years ago, I would have loved to have done it, but for a completely different reason. I would have come here to get you all saved. (laughs) And I had all the right questions down, whether it was going to be about salvation or Mary or the Pope. And on the Pope, I would have come, because this is what we're going to talk about, and asked, where do you find the Pope in the Bible? Come on, Catholics. Peter, but where's the word Pope? What has anything to do with the Vatican? Where do you find Pope Mobiles? Don't see those in the Gospel of Matthew. You know these Pope Mobiles in the Vatican and cardinals with a silly, you know, the red clothes and all this. The way I'm thinking before. See, I'm putting myself back 15 years. Where do you find anywhere where it says that Peter's going to be the Pope and the head of the church? The Bible says Jesus is the head of the church. So I would have come with these questions, but now I'm on the other side of the fence and I'm going to tell you how I found the Pope in the Bible. But first, I want to tell you my joke. A reporter goes to a large religious organization... And he's interviewing the president of this large religious organization. And he sees that the man has a black phone and a red phone on his desk. And he asks, well, tell me about these phones here. I'd like to get this down. You know, this is unusual. Two phones, and a black and a red. And the guy says, oh, that's very easy. He said, the black phone is a normal phone I can call anywhere in the United States, or the world for that matter. And I can consult with other religious leaders and pastors and Bible teachers and so on. And it's, it's just a regular phone. And he said, well, what about the red phone? And he said, well, that's, that's, no, that's not a regular phone. That's a very special phone, I can lift that phone up and talk directly to God in heaven. And he goes, wow, I'm impressed. He said, yeah. And he said, how much does a phone call like that cost? The guy blushes a little. He says, well, it's $10,000 a call, but you know, sometimes when you really got to speak to God, you got to speak to God. And then he's a week later. He's in the Vatican and he's speaking with the Holy Father. And he notices that he has a black phone and a red phone on his desk. And so he's curious if it's the same situation. And he says, Holy Father, what's these two phones? Oh, the, I'm not going to try and do his accent. Oh, the Father says, Holy Father, the Pope says, this black phone I can call the cardinals anywhere in the world. I can call the archbishops. I can call if there's a liturgical question, whatever. He says, I normal phone. And he says, now what about this red phone? He says, I I saw one the other day. Is this the same? And the Pope says, oh, this is a very special phone. I can pick this up and talk directly to God. And the reporter says, well, Holy Father, how much does a phone call like that cost? And the Holy Father says, well, don't tell anybody, but it's only 10 cents because from here it's a local call. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really true. In a way, that's really true. I had the... Blessing my wife and I of meeting John Paul II twice, having private mass with him in his chapel, which only holds 30 people. And I, I was very persistent. I sent faxes every day, and they kept saying, non possible, non possible. The last day they said, be at the bronze door seven. <laughs> I didn't have a suit. I only had this. I didn't think I was really going to get in. I ran down the street, and our, my friend who's a waiter, about 250 pounds, he says, come with me, cigarette in hand, running down the streets of Rome. We pulled in the shop with the curtains coming down. He says, no, no, my friend needs a suit. And so they, I bought a suit and everything, shoes and everything. And, but it, you know, they didn't have the hems in, so my wife spent the evening with straight pins putting up and the sleeves. And if the Pope would have looked closely, there was pins all the way around and pins all the way here. But, I, but about him having this red phone is, uh, it, there's a truth to that. And I, I have to say this, and don't think I'm sacrilegious in this, but when I was there, I, when you're in Israel and Italy, you learn to use your elbows. Remember, I used to about use your elbows. And I ended up in the front seat of this little chapel with the Pope. My wife and I are right here in the front, and he was kneeling about as far as the front row to here, kneeling in prayer. And my first thought was, bear with me here, my first thought was, if, if somebody went up and pushed him over, he wouldn't be able to get up by himself. That was my first thought when I saw the Pope. He's so old and fragile that if I were to go up and push him over, he couldn't get up. And yet, he's the strongest man in the world. What a paradox. I looked at him with his frumpy little robe on. He'd just gotten up in the morning. It didn't look like he'd brushed his hair yet, and he had these little slippers on. And I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, he's just a little old man like everybody else. And yet, there's no one else in the world like this man, because he is the vicar of Christ that carries the keys of the kingdom. And I love the Catholic Church because of these paradoxes. How can this little old man there, who you could knock over and he couldn't stand up by himself, be the most powerful man in the world? Isn't there, there's not a rock star or a politician that wouldn't love to have one-tenth of his fame and his respect and his popularity. And yet, it's amazing. But the church is full of these seeming contradictions or paradoxes this Jewish man walking through the streets of Israel is not only a man, but he's also 100% God. How contradictory is that? I'm a sinner and I'm a saint. I mean, there's, it's, it's marvelous. It's the real world. But anyway, I want to talk about Peter, the rock, the keys, and the chair. And... Those three elements, I think, will help us go dig into the Bible a little bit and pull out who Peter is, but also I want to do it a little bit with geography too and understanding the land. If you understand what's there, you understand a lot about this. First of all, we have to forget that we're Americans for a while, forget that we live here, we have to live 2,000 years ago, we have to pretend we're Jewish, we have to remember we don't speak English over there, it's a different language, and if we use our imaginations, it'll help us a lot. Remember, I use the example of the glasses. If you wear blue glasses, the world looks blue. And, and now I, I used to have these Baptist glasses and I got rid of them. I found a very special optometrist who made a very special pair for me. This is a Jewish lens and this is a Catholic lens. <laughs> and now I see the world in focus. So remember these stories, uh, not a story, but I don't know if you had them here, but in Ann Arbor there's a mall called Briarwood Mall and they had these little booths where they were selling artwork and there's called Magic Eyes. And it looked like paint was just splattered on. And if you looked at it hard enough, it would pop out a third, uh, a three-dimensional object would pop out. And we were there one time, and there was this, it was all splattered. It was the big one. And they said, if you look at this, there's a, three, there's a unicorn flying over three pine trees. And I said, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> in your dreams. And so my wife was looking, and she said, oh, I see it. And I thought my wife was crazy. We're, there's no unicorn there. I'm looking at it. I'm a rational man. My eyes are as good as anybody's. And then I stared at it until all of a sudden, boom, it popped out at me for a couple seconds, and then it was gone. But there it was, a three-dimensional unicorn flying over three pine trees. And then I learned how to look at it right, and I saw that. Now, if I were to come to you and say, where's the Pope in the Bible? as a, Back in my old days, I couldn't see it. It looked like just... There's nothing there. What do you Catholics see? But you had Jewish eyes. You had Catholic eyes. You had the good glasses already. So when you went to the Bible, you could see it. And that's what I want to help you do today, to see it better and more clearly and putting on our Jewish Catholic glasses. First, I want to start with the rock. And I'm going to move quickly through this so we can finish. Jesus took the disciples up for a long walk. He took them up to Caesarea Philippi. Those who have gone with me, we've gone to Caesarea. Isn't it an amazing sight? It's stunning. So it's one of the sites that not everybody goes to because it's way up by the Lebanese border. But I always go there because of the significance of the site. And I do it there. I do what I'm doing here, but I do it in about 15 minutes. So I talk really fast. But you know, I did, it's faster than normal. And and also I have to say that there's been a couple times. where There's this little like amphitheaters where you sit and then I can talk. And there's a couple of them in a row. And we were coming along one. I don't remember if it, I forget which time is which, but there's a Baptist group over here. You know, with their Bibles open, and I. Always I just kind of go over to listen, you know, and I, and I can spot them a mile away because I used to be one of them. And I knew exactly what I was going to hear, and I, he didn't let me down. I got there right at the moment when he said, Now, our Roman Catholic friends, they'll tell you that Peter is the Pope, and that's because they don't know their Bibles. <laughs> if I You can see there's a big scar on my tongue. <laughs> I bit my tongue. I didn't want to be disrespectful. I go there to show them the rock because I want them to, uh, people to understand what Jesus was doing there. Jesus was a master teacher. He always used marvelous backdrops when he taught. He was a teacher who knew how to show things. Rosalind mentioned giving ourselves to God. Remember the time Jesus used the coin and says, whose image is on the coin? See, he could teach something there. Whose image is on the coin? It's Caesar's. Since Caesar minted this coin with his image on it, whose coin is it? It's Caesar's coin. Then give it back to Caesar if he requires it. But you give to God what is God's and what is God's. You, what's been stamped on you? You're made in the image of God. The image of Caesar's on the coin, give it back to him. The image of God is stamped on you, so give yourself to him when he demands it. Jesus was a master teacher. He'd hold up a coin. Look what he just said with a coin. Look at the rocks of the field. The sower went out to sow all through Galilee's rocks everywhere. But this is one of the most stunning backdrops that Jesus ever chose. It is a huge rock in Banias, and we'll get to why it's called Banias in a minute. But it's up at the northern border. When you drive along, you see the fence and the border with, with uh, Lebanon and Israel and all the signs that say landmines, danger, do not go in these areas. I have one of those signs hanging up in my house, by the way. And they wondered at the airport, why do you have this in your suitcase? That's my souvenir. Jesus took the disciples up this long journey to, at the time, called Caesarea Philippi. And it's a long walk. It takes us over an hour on the bus. You know, you get these nice Mercedes buses going 60, 70 miles an hour. It takes you an hour to get there a little more. How long does it take to walk up there when there aren't any roads like that? You're already 80 miles from Jerusalem down here. You're already up at the Sea of Galilee. Now you're going to go another four or five days walk way up here. Why would Jesus go there? Not only why would he go all that way walking, but it's Gentile pagan territory. It is at that place one of the most Uh, pagan worship sites anywhere in the Roman Empire. It's where gods are worshipped, unholy masses are taking place, maybe orgies and things. Why would Jesus want to go up into this unholy place north of Israel? Well, it's because there's a backdrop there that he couldn't pass up, being the good teacher that he was. He takes the apostles up there. Oh, first of all, when, when you read that passage in Matthew 16 and it said Jesus and his disciples went into the district of Caesarea Philippi and then you get the question and the answers and the response. People say to me, Steve, you teach the Bible. You've written books on studying the Bible. How do you study the Bible? And I say there's one, there's one basic rule that you start with besides knowing it's the word of God and wanting to dig in and find it. The basic rule is, whenever you read a passage, ask as many stupid questions as you can and then look for the answers. It's simple. It's very simple. It doesn't take a scholar to study the Bible. Just go and ask questions. Why Caesarea Philippi? And what's so special about Caesarea Philippi? And you ask those two questions and you stop and you get a Bible dictionary, go online, get my book, whatever, and you all of a sudden you have just started to dig into a gold mine. Why, Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus brings his disciples up here, and I'm going to tell you why, Caesarea Philippi. Jesus says to Peter at this point, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, well, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the 11, already you're seeing something happening here, he speaks for the other 11. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, very good, Peter, you got it right for a change. You know, a few verses later, Peter says, no one's going to crucify you, no one's going to do this. And Jesus pointed to Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. Same chapter in the Bible. One minute he says, Peter, blessed are you. This was a revelation from God. And a few verses later, get behind me, Satan. And he points right to Peter. I'll talk about infallibility later. So you have this question. Peter says you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and it's a definition we still use today. Remember, Roz said Christ is Christos, meaning Messiah. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're from heaven. And so when he defines Jesus, Jesus says, well, very good, Peter. Now I'm going to return the favor and I'm going to define you. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. In English, you say, so what? What does that mean? So you give him a new name, Peter. I know lots of people named Peter. But there was nobody named Peter before. And if you were reading it in Greek, you wouldn't read Peter. Because we lose the word play in English. We say, Peter, and on this rock. If you were reading it in French, it would say, you are Pierre, and on this Pierre, I will build my church. Because the word Pierre is rock. It's the word Peter. If you were reading it, if you go a level deeper and you read it in the Greek, it says, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. Aha, said I as evangelical. The Catholics are wrong. How can they say Peter is a rock when Jesus uses two different words? If they just read their Bible, they'd know this. You are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. Different words. Why? Because in Greek, it's a language that has masculine and feminine nouns, like Spanish or other languages, and Petra is the word for rock in Greek, and it happens to be a feminine noun. So calling Peter, saying you are Petra, would be like saying to me, you are Stephanie. <laughs> my name is Stephen, not Stephanie. My middle name is Kim. Why my mom named me that, I have no idea. <laughs> she knew somebody named Kim, and I guess it's a boy's name too, I haven't found many of them. And so my name, Stephen, was like Stephen in the Bible with a PH. And as soon as anybody found that out, I was Stephanie Kim. And do you remember Johnny Cash's song, The Boy Named Sue? <laughs> I was a scrapper when I was a kid. I learned to defend myself. You call me Stephanie Kim, you're on the ground. But this is the situation. Jesus called him Petros because Petra was a feminine noun. So he made a new word. He created a new word, Petros, which is rock with a masculine ending on it. Simple. You are the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. But Jesus wasn't speaking in Greek. We have to go a language below. He spoke Aramaic. That is the language of the time. That's what the apostles spoke. That's what Jesus spoke. Hebrew was the the language used for temple worship. It was the religious language of the day. But they spoke Aramaic. If you want to hear Aramaic, you can go on my blog back a few months and you can hear our friend in Bethlehem, Ephraim, say the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic, the way Jesus said it. You wouldn't have a clue what he was saying if you didn't know. But I also, I think it was the last trip or the trip before, I got him to record for me... Matthew 16, 18, where it says, you are rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. And I had him say it for me in Aramaic, the way Jesus said it. And as he's saying these words, I don't know what he's saying, all of a sudden I heard the words, kepha kepha Because the word for rock in Aramaic is kepha K-E-P-H-A. So when Jesus was speaking in Aramaic, he didn't say Peter or Rock or Petros or Petra. He said, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha, I will build my church. And we know this is the word because Jesus prophesied it way before in John chapter 1, verse 42, when he first meets Simon, he said, oh, Simon, you will be called Cephas, the rock. John even puts in a parenthesis, the rock, so you'll know what the word Cephas means. Cephas and Kepha, the same word. You will be called Cephas. When? Up at the rock someday when we get there. I'll give you this new name. So we have this new name, Peter, Petros, Cephas, Cephas. And people say Paul and Peter were enemies. They always were fighting. They didn't get along. Paul went off like the Lone Ranger and started his own churches. And Peter went and did his thing. You know, the, Peter is the Catholic apostle and Paul is the Protestant apostle. And they went different directions. But whenever Paul refers to Peter, remember what he calls him. In Galatians, he said, I went up to Jerusalem to confer with the rock, Cephas. Doesn't call him Simon, doesn't call him Peter. He says, when I went up to Jerusalem, I spent two weeks with Cephas, the rock. I received the right hand of fellowship from Cephas, the rock. Now, when you drive, why is the rock so important and have to do with this conversation? It's because Jesus has just walked into Caesarea Philippi, which is a big town at the time. And when we come around the corner, I've been there 50 times, I still get goosebumps when I see it because it's a magnificent sight. And I always love to see how people react when they see it for the first time. Because there you pull around the corner and there is the face of a rock Probably 500 feet long and 50 to 100 feet high. I'm not good with, I haven't measured it. But I know it's a big, huge rock with a huge cave. I'm going to do it on this side because it's in perspective for you. A huge cave in the side of the rock, which is massive cave. And then in the middle there are niches carved into the rocks where they used to put pagan gods for worship. Carved right into the face of the rock, which still has Greek letters written around it. And there are numbers of them, some big enough for you to get stand in. And Jesus comes up to there and he stops in front of that huge rock and he said, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you know, you are the Christ and the living God. He says, thank you for defining who I am. Now I'll define who you are with this rock as the background. You are now rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now let me tell you a little bit about this rock. Before the time of Christ, King Herod the Great built a temple at this rock, in front of this huge cave. By the way, you can go on my website. I have pictures of this on my website in what's called Stories Photo Albums. I have lots of pictures of this. Even what it looked like in the time of Christ. King Herod built a beautiful white marble temple in front of the cave, and he dedicated it to Caesar. It was built to the divine Caesar Augustus. He was God. The Caesar was. You know that, right? You'd have to worship him. You would have to pinch incense to the divine Caesar Augustus because he's the Lord. You can have another Lord if you want to, but you have to prove your loyalty to the Roman Empire. It was the glue that held society together. You had to pinch incense and honor the brilliance of the emperor and acknowledge him as Lord. That's why Christians got in trouble in the first few centuries because they said, no, let's see, in the Mass on Sunday, I said, if I remember right, we worship one Lord, Jesus Christ. So, Caesar can't be Lord, so I'm sorry, we can't do this. And if you were back in those days, many situations, you would have Roman soldiers come into a room like this and tell you to get into two lines. This line, you will, for those who say there's only one Lord and don't, aren't willing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord and burn incense to him, it doesn't matter, you can even cross your fingers. You don't have to believe it, you don't have to mean it, just cross your fingers, come burn incense, but those who don't, you get in this line over here and we're going to cut your heads off. So you either burn incense with your fingers crossed or you get in this line and we're going to cut your heads off. This is what the Christians lived with for the several hundred years. Sporadic at times, yes, but many did. Thousands died. Which line would you get in? You think, well, you know, something he said, I could cross my fingers. I don't even have to mean it. I'm going to go over in this line, cross my fingers, and pinch the incense to Caesar. Nobody's going to be hurt by it. Nobody's, I'm already admitting I don't believe it, and I'm not, but, but I have grandchildren now. I have a, a job and a career and a wife and a family. And then all of a sudden, as I'm coming up to this line, somebody whispers in my ear, Steve, remember that Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. Which line are you going to get in today? if it was presented to you in that way. This is what our brothers and sisters, that's why in the movie I did on the apostolic fathers, I go into great detail on this, because this is what those who founded our faith, the first centuries, who suffered and shed their blood, that's why we're here today, because they were willing to suffer that. But I got off track there. You come to this rock, and there's the temple to the divine Caesar Augustus, and you worship him, and the pagans used to come and bring living sacrifices, and they would walk through the, the temple, And the cave beyond was, at the time of Christ, all water at the bottom of the cave. And Josephus, a Jewish writer of the first century, said that there were many times that men took a string and put a rock on the bottom, and they'd put it down, 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 and they could never find the bottom of the water. And so the people would come and throw their living sacrifices through the cave, through the temple, into the water, and they would worship and sacrifice to the gods. And if water, if the blood came out from under because there was water there and there's a stream running out from under the cave, if there was blood in the water, it meant that the gods had rejected your sacrifice. But if there was no blood, it meant that the gods had accepted your sacrifice. But in Christianity, it's the exact opposite. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And you know what they called the cave? Think about it. If the gods live down there and they're throwing sacrifices into them, they considered it the entrance to the netherworld. The gates of? Why does Jesus go up and said, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because now he's standing in front of the rock, he's standing in front of a false church and he's standing in front of the gates of hell. How many of you knew this? This is what we should be teaching our kids in CCD and in schools. Kids should know this because they'd be proud to be Catholic and they'd be proud of the Pope and they'd want to tell everybody about the rock and the caves and animals getting bloody in the water. And so it's great for kids to tell these stories. So here you have Jesus at a place where there is a false rock with a false church, a white temple to the divine Caesar Augustus, and they're coming there to worship false gods and a false lord. And what is Jesus doing? He's saying no. No. I'm starting over something different. I am going to put you, Peter, as the new and true rock. And on you, I'm going to build the true church, not this pagan temple. And then this true church, you will worship the true Lord, me, not Caesar. See the backdrop? See why he took him to Caesarea Philippi? Now there's something else about, oh, the, uh, the, also the water coming out from under the rock. Even today, you have to walk across the streams. The water's not in the cave anymore, but the water's still rushing out from under the rock. And the water rushing out from under the rock is one of the three main sources of the Jordan River. It's one of the three headwaters of the Jordan River. The Jordan River, by the way, is the source of life for the whole land of Israel. In the pumping station in the Sea of Galilee, It's right there in the northeast corners. We drive around to go to Capernaum and back and forth. There's a pumping station in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee and they pump water out of the Sea of Galilee and it goes to Jerusalem, to Haifa, to Beersheba, to Netanya, all over to the big cities. Seventy percent of the water you drink in Israel comes out of the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River runs from Caesarea Philippi, where we're talking about it, runs from there into the Sea of Galilee where it then sustains the people of God in the land. The land would be a desert without the sea. And then it flows on down another 60 miles to the Dead Sea. But the water that came out from under that rock sustained the people of God in that land for all of that time. And if you look at it now, Peter is the rock, and there's no longer a false temple, it's now the church. What is the water that flows out from Peter and the church? What is it? We follow that symbol of the, the cave and the rock. And the wa- What is the water that flows out of the cave of Peter? And the rock of the church, it is true doctrine. It is the grace of the sacraments. It's the life of God that flows from that rock. The true teaching and scripture and tradition. The sacraments that come through the church. That's the living water. And no longer does that water sustain just the people of God in Israel. It sustains the people of God everywhere in the world because the water flows from the rock of Peter and the church and the sacraments for us today. All of this just from going up to this rock and finding out what the word Caesarea Philippi means. Now, I told you that there are niches in the wall. Why niches? Because at the time of Christ, there were statues put in there even beforehand. And the number one statue that was in there was called Pan, the Greek god Pan. In fact, the name of the city before it was Caesarea Philippi was Panias, P-A-N-E-A-S. Panias with a P, the city of Pan, People came from around the Roman Empire to worship the god Pan at this site. And on my website, I have a picture of what it was like at the time, and you can see them like unholy masses being celebrated, orgies and dancing in front of the pagan gods. And what was Pan the god of? Think of what Jesus is doing here. He's appointing Peter. The god Pan was primarily the god of sheep and shepherds. Who is speaking right now? The chief shepherd. And what is he doing? He's appointing Peter to be his shepherd in his absence.
0: We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.